Hey, what's up, everybody? Just a uh, quick note before we dive into today's show. So the Lions of Liberty Pride, are you a member yet? You should be. If you're not, I don't know why you're not. You can join by going to patreon.com slash Liberty. Why would you join? Because you get all kinds of bonus content. You get Brian's daily show, Good Morning Bleephead, which is honestly, it's good. It's really good. It's one of my favorite podcasts to listen to. Just like a quick bite, a, a news clip from the day and Brian's rant, and it's, uh, it's glorious. You also get Conspiracy Corner. Degenerate Gamblers or other bonus shows. Great stuff. You get uh, early releases like uh, my Scott Horton interview, which came out on Tuesday. The Pride heard that on Monday. And uh, you also get some special offers. Like we have a uh, special private access for Vin Armani's Bitcoin Mystery School. If you know a lot about Bitcoin, if you know nothing about Bitcoin, it's perfect for you. Um, you can learn from Vin. You're actually going to come out of this and, l- and know more about Bitcoin than a lot of developers. I'll be taking it. Brian will. Mark will be taking it. And a bunch of Pride members, too. We got a couple slots left. Um, to get those slots, just join the Pride. Go to patreon.com slash Liberty, and you'll get access to the uh, discounted Bitcoin Mystery School with Vin Armani. You'll get our bonus content. You'll get a bunch of uh, merchandise, whatever, depending what level you join at. You get access to the show. Um, one of our patrons, Matt McKinley, um, he's going to be able to produce his own show. And guess what? It's an LILDL, a, uh, a swap cast that, uh, that we're doing, recording. And you'll be able to hear that show, I think, this, uh, this Saturday, this weekend. We'll publish it. So, all right, on with the show. We are born free. And we will die free. The time in between, though, that's complicated. In that time, governments, institutions, and our egos will limit our ability to find true freedom in this life. These are real stories of real people overcoming the odds, persevering in justice, and unlocking their potential. Welcome to Finding Freedom. Here's your host, John Oderman. Welcome in. Gather around, boys and girls. This is another episode of Finding Freedom here on the Lions of Liberty podcast, and Guys, this is uh, this is like a turn back the clock episode to Felony Friday. What this show used to be called. This is this is getting back to my roots, guys. I am so excited that I'm going to get to talk to. I'm going to get to talk to John Bolin, um, the husband of June Bolin. June was on my podcast several months ago, back in August, I think, uh, advocating for her husband John's clemency. John's story is crazy, man. Like it's like the prototypical first-time offender. How in the heck did he get sentenced to life in prison? Uh, it's, I mean, it's just like it's a poster story for what is wrong with the criminal justice system, and it's a happy story now because John is free. June came on the show in August. John got out in October, and he's here today to share with you guys. And I am so excited for you guys to get to hear from John Bolin. Let's get into the show. Okay, my guest today on Finding Freedom is John Bolin. In 2006, John was charged with conspiracy to import five or more kilos and possession with intent to uh, distribute and a bunch of other charges related to that. The important takeaways here, and we'll get into his story. John was a first-time offender. Very unique story in that... uh, 
We'll talk about uh, the, he had a fishing business that had fallen on hard times due to hurricanes and, th- and things like that. And that's how he ended up getting entangled in this drug trade. Ultimately, he was sentenced to life in prison, first time offense. And if you remember back in August of 2020, his wife, June, was on this show to advocate uh, for his clemency. And thankfully, in October, October 21st, John uh, was granted clemency by President Trump. And he's here with us today. John, welcome to Finding Freedom. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's uh, I definitely I'm lucky and um, I've definitely been blessed and um, I'm very appreciative. Super happy to be here. Yeah, it's 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 awesome to have you here, man. And yeah, you know, you did so 2006. I guess you you started serving your time. So what was it? Four, 14? 14 15? years. Yeah, 14 years. So it's it's always amazing to me, and and you can expand on this when someone like yourself does get out after serving this time. A real real injustice, first time offense, sends to life. It's just absurd, and uh, you have a. A good attitude about it. Do you have any sort of resentment about uh, about your sentence, about the time that you served? Uh, 50-50. There's, um, my, my resentment is more regret towards the stupid decision that I made to, to get there in the first place. Um, the other part of that is the resentment because I did wrong. I deserve to be punished. Make no mistake. It's, uh, I did something incredibly stupid. Um, really don't know what was going through my head at the time. And I regret every second of that decision. You know, the pain I caused my family, that sort of thing. And and the hardships, um, the resentment comes in because there was, a, well, first of all, the sentence, um, four life sentences. I had never even had a speeding ticket. I've never been in trouble. Mm. Um, the resentment comes in because I think of the conspiracy laws and, and how everything just kind of exploded. And my whole entire case just went from bad to worse, um, getting involved in that. And, you know, when, you, when you're growing up and you learn a little bit about the legal system, you know, in, in school, you hear about you have the appeals courts and all this sort of stuff. But it's, it's, not, it's not what it seems like. Um, it's an adversarial process from the minute you're indicted all the way through, all the way up until the appeals process, even the clemency process. It's an adversarial process with the government. Uh, they fight you every step of the way. Um, and there's been, over the years, I've had, unbiasedly, I've had some pretty good grounds for appeal, which I could have maybe had a sentence reduction. Um, when the Drugs Minus Two came out, I know you're familiar with that, that's, mm-hmm. I had an opportunity there to maybe get a sentence to 30 years, and they still fought me tooth and nail on that and ultimately denied me there. So... You know, those little things, they all add up, and that's that's where the resentment comes in. <clears throat> yeah, so let's uh, – I, I do want to talk more about the specifics of your of your case and the trial and, and everything that, that went on there and the arrest and everything. Before we get to that, though, let's start at the – the good part, the happy part, getting uh, getting released in in October. The happy part. It, uh, <laughs> I had no idea it was coming. You know, um, obviously we were hopeful. Um, there was some advocates for us. You know, Amy with Can Do, mm-hmm. and uh, she's just did phenomenal work, um, highlighting my case and knocking on doors and talking yeah. with people and, and really putting me out there. And uh, but working backwards. Uh, you know, in federal prison, you have four o'clock count. 
And um, so it's you're locked behind the door for at four o'clock. Usually it's an hour, hour and a half. And uh, it was a Wednesday and uh, a case manager from a different unit, a lady that I never normally deal with. She knocks on the door and she's asking me what my release address is. And uh, I, so I give it to her just, you know, automatically. Then I, I kind of ask her why. And she tells me that, well, you're going home. And I immediately tell her, I said, don't screw with me, lady. Don't screw with me. Because just a little backstory there. A lot of times uh, they'll come in and, and somebody will have an immediate release or some action on their case. Mm-hmm. But they have a similar federal register number or a similar name to another inmate. And I've seen it happen time and time again where even they've even packed up and sent the wrong inmate out to the front. Wow. Thinking he's going home and then he comes back and the guy's deflated and 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 worse if you can imagine. So my initial thing was is listen, don't screw with me, you know, this and she said, No, I'm not screwing with you. And so I had asked her at the time, I said, Well is it clemency or is it uh my 3582, because I had did a compassionate release motion. Mm-hmm. Um, with the first step back, they expanded the use of compassionate release. And I had some grounds that I was, you know, applying for, which that motion is actually still open in the court, ironically. But um, she tells me that the president let me out. And uh, wow. I just, oh, my God, I could not believe it. I just started crying and shaking. And I was, she's telling me that they've got to get me out and they've got to get me out now. Because it's uh, immediate release, executive clemency, and she's working overtime. I've got to catch a bus to go down to Orlando to catch another bus to get on Miami and all this stuff. And and then my my cellmate at the time, he's just concerned because he wants my property. And I'm telling him, listen, you could have everything I have. It's just, I'm taking my personal photos. I don't care about anything. Just let me get my personal photos out of here. And, and uh, so... Long story short, they uh, that was at four fifteen by five thirty or so. I was out the front door, and I was in a uh, there's a not a taxi but a, a car service that the prison uses, mm-hmm. you know, for inmates. And they had to get me to a bus station in Orlando. Apparently, I guess they had to something with my probation because I still have five years of supervised release. Um, when the judge sentenced me to four life sentences. He said, I still have five years supervised release. Um, and it's funny because he, well, it's not funny, but he said it with a grin on his face. I'll never forget my sentencing when he said, you know, after my life sentence and I still have five years supervised release. But so uh, long story short, that's uh, that's what happened there. I did get a phone call. Uh, I didn't know if June had known or what was going on, but I'm thinking, well, I have to have a ride, you know, and, and there's. Over the years, you know, with the trying to visualize if this this day ever came for me and I was granted my release, mm-hmm. you know, how what would I say to the June on the phone, you know? And I've had all kinds of witty little things that you know I wouldn't say to her and this and that and I'd make a joke or you know, hey, I need a ride, just be flipping about it. And uh, I got on the phone with her and I I just said it, all I could say was it's over, and just wow. started bawling, as bawling, and and I couldn't stop crying. And, uh, and that was in, that was in the, the car when you were on your way that, to the bus. That or? was in that between that four o'clock to five thirty okay. time. Cause I had to go to the back to sign some papers, uh, with the officer and uh, she let me call my family and, um, we arranged for them to come meet us at the bus station in Orlando. And, uh, it was just surreal. And, uh, it's, it's, it's funny, John, because 
part of me, I, I, I knew it was happening, but I was still apprehensive about if, if this is for real, you know, if this was the thing. Um, I had seen on the counselor's desk the copy of the clemency with my name on it, with President Trump's signature on it. I didn't wasn't furnished a copy. Uh, I did actually get one from from the White House a few days later, um, mailed to the House. But uh, at the time, you know, I'm back there in the office. I'm making the phone call to June, this and that, and she had heard um, through Alice Marie Johnson that uh, I was being released. So they were actually already in route to Orlando to come pick me up, and all this was going on on the outside, and, and I had no idea, you know. Oh wow! And we were just all of us were just balling because it, it, it was instant and um for two weeks straight everything was i see a bird in the wire and just break out crying you know because <laughs> it was something that the little things that you you uh you take for granted mm-hmm. um when your freedom's gone you know and just the the life of, of freedom even the smells of everything so um we we're definitely happy but it was it was i think if I can classify the one feeling that I had, it was probably just relief, you know, just that the suffering was over and um, I can kind of rebuild my family. It was definitely an incredible day though. Yeah, just like a weight lifted off your shoulders. I'm, I'm Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. Well, and, was there ever any time when you were incarcerated that you kind of lost hope and thought that you might spend the rest of your life in prison? Yeah. Um, that was a big struggle for me. They, uh, I tried to, you know, in the beginning you have appeals and you just, there's a part of you that says, well, this, this, there's, this isn't right. I, I, you know, karmically, you know, if you will, mm-hmm. I, I just, I, you know, I did bad, but it's, I, I, I just, there was a, a big part of me that was, well, this isn't going to, something's going to break. And then you go through your first appeal and you, your hopes are up. Everybody's hopes are up. Then you lose those appeals and you kind of go downhill and it's a roller coaster and you're watching the law library, looking for new laws to come out, something that might apply. And, and uh, I got real bad, I guess, probably after my 10th year. Um, I think it was, yeah, no, it was, it was after the Obama initiative. When the Obama clemency initiative came out, I think that's probably where I crashed the worst um, because they had a set of criteria as far as a nonviolent crime, you know, so on and so forth, having done so so much time in prison, mm-hmm. um, no write-ups or disciplinary infractions, things like that. And and I met every one of those criteria uh, to a T. And so I was real hopeful when the Obama initiative came out because I felt like, I mean, I'm the perfect candidate for it. Yeah. You know, I've uh, really tried to, to run the straight and narrow and, and run a good life and just be an honest, good person, you know, and, and I went astray one time in my life and I didn't ever want to do it again, you know? And, um, the, the, the last day of office and I didn't get that clemency. I think me and a bunch of other guys that were in the same boat, you know, mm-hmm. um, but that, that's really where I just kind of lost hope. And, and it, it's, it's odd because I was afraid to be too optimistic about stuff. Uh, when, when Amy Pova took on my case and started, you know, working for me and she's such an incredible criminal justice warrior. It's just amazing. Um, but they, uh, 
I was afraid to get my hopes up and I was afraid to get my family's hopes up because it's been let down after let down. And uh, so I had to kind of balance that with at the same time, you want to visualize what you want to have happen and be positive about the future mm -hmm. and, and kind of put in your head that, yes, this is going to happen. But something kept pulling me back to, you know, be a little more reserved about it and not get my hopes up too high, if that makes sense. Um, there's a lot of older people in prison, especially in the units that I, I've lived in. Um, and, and you see these, these guys, they're, they're just, they've given up. Um, I, I've, in order to cope at those times where it was real dark for me, I just told myself, well, I'm in a nursing home type of situation. You know, I just kind of got here a little, a little earlier than I planned on, you know, and, but, uh, I had to kind of rationalize it. Well, okay. This isn't that bad of a living situation, you know? And, and I think that was just a mechanism for me to kind of just balance being realistic with, I do have four life sentences and until they change that, then I might die in prison. Um, balance that with the hope of, man, yeah. something can change for me. I guess, I guess you kind of have to do that. Otherwise you'll drive yourself nuts. You have yeah. to find a way to, to rationalize it. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's turn the page back to, to how this all started. If you could share, um, you know, what your life was like, what your fishing business was like and uh, what that time in your life was like with you and June, your wife, um, sort of before any of uh, this other stuff started. We, um, all my life, I wanted to be a charter boat captain. I wanted to take people. I was home when I was like eight years old and I had the chicken pox. And my dad at the time got me a fishing magazine. And in the back, they had the little advertisements for the fishing guides and that sort of mm -hmm. thing. And uh, I used to love to go fishing. And I, and I didn't know that there was such a thing that you could take people out fishing and get paid for it, you know? So ever since I was like seven or eight, that's what I want to do for a living. And, uh, so, you know, I grew up and had jobs and stuff like that. And then, uh, I worked on getting my Coast Guard cabin's license, which um, amounted to getting a lot of sea time, um, a lot of experience at, at sea on different boats and that sort mm -hmm. of thing. And I finally got my cabin's license. And at this point, I, uh, we had an outdoor power equipment shop um, where we did sales and service for commercial lawnmowers for the commercial landscapers. And uh, I had got a boat, a center console, and I was fishing part-time and uh, advertising the fishing business and then also running my lawnmower business and uh my son was was born around that time and um i i just i kind of wanted to take it to the next level and fish full-time and um we ended up you know selling the business and getting another boat and fishing full-time and by now you know years have gone by and i had booked up a pretty decent clientele um had some repeat business and advertising was going well and and uh you know, weather permitted, I, I take customers out fishing in the ocean and just have a great time fishing and end up and getting paid to go fishing. It was, yeah. it was like the dream come true. So and this is like you're you're doing deep sea fishing. Deep sea fishing, yeah, yeah. What's I the was, uh, what, what's your coolest memory of uh, or one of your coolest memories of uh, either you or or a customer catching a catching a big one? The uh, you know it's it's funny. They um, I used to love marlin fishing. And uh, I had eventually built up to a point where we'd go marlin fishing and that sort of thing. But I had, uh, a, a, as a matter of fact, I just pulled a picture out the other day. Um, I had some friends that, well, a, a customer actually that kind of turned into friends. They owned a tree service and they were a customer of me when I had my lawnmower shop. 
And uh, we had them over in the Bahamas and June was on the boat. My son, John was on the boat that day. And, you know, there was a charter, you know, and they were paying the expenses and mm-hmm. stuff, but it was, we were like a group of friends, you know, yeah. going fishing and uh, perfect conditions. And we had caught a lot of yellowfin tuna. And um, right at the end of the day, we just caught this monster yellowfin tuna. It was the biggest I had caught to date at that point. And uh, just the, the, the happiness of everybody on board um, that particular time really sticks out you know it's because they weren't the normal uh charter clients where you might meet them one time and they might fish with you next year but this is just a a group of guys that kind of became friends you know and it was where i kind of felt bad even having to charge them to go out fishing and that sort of thing you know Uh, like well guys i gotta charge you for this you know i'm sorry we're having such a great time but i do have bills to pay you know but uh that was probably one of the, the biggest uh fishing memories that I had. But uh, so, you know, years go by. And then uh, in 2004, we had a run of hurricanes that came through our coast. And um, Hurricane Francis, Gene, and Ivan, I think it was, it devastated my little area. Um, The marina that I was docked at was just destroyed. And my boat was landlocked. The roof ripped off my grandma's house. My mom's house got damaged. Our house got damaged. It's... um, if you go back and look at the area at the time, it's like everyone had blue tarps on their roof and they had no power for like three weeks, four weeks. And uh, the marina was saying that I wouldn't even get in the water for at least six months because they had boats piled up, laid over their side, you know, on the concrete on dry dock and sunken boats and all this. And uh, That was a scary time for me because I, we had sold our lawnmower shop and, and put everything into this fishing business. And, um, that was a rough go. Uh, during that time, I kind of stayed busy because I was doing drywall and replacing wet insulation and working in my, my family's houses, getting things back together. And, um, you know, the irony is, is at that time, we were getting a lot of calls for trips for because there are so many out-of-town workers that had come down to Central Florida, uh, mm-hmm. linemen and insurance agents and adjusters, roofers. So we were actually getting a lot of business calls, but I had no boat to take them out. My mm-hmm. boat was landlocked in a marina. And uh, so I finally got going again and I started fishing back in the Bahamas. And that was the tipping point for me. Uh, I had some guys over there that offered me the opportunity to make some quick money. And all I had to do was let them use the boat, hand the keys, and they would use the boat to smuggle drugs, which is a big thing in the Bahamas, apparently. And uh, So you wouldn't even be... You weren't even on the boat when they were doing it. No, never, never. Mm-hmm. They, uh, I had the whole thing of, I hand them the keys and, you know, they would use the boat and bring the boat back. And then they'd hand me cash for the use of the boat. And John, that's, that's, that's where I screwed up because somehow in my mind, I rationalized it and I justified it that, well, cause I'm not seeing any drugs. I'm not handling any drugs. I'm really not even seeing the guys on the boat. You know, I, I rationalized in my head that, hey, it's not that bad. Um, I was able to take that little bit of cash, which really wasn't much in hindsight, and, you know, pay my bills for another few months, you know, until things kind of got picked back up. And um, that went on for about eight months, give or, yeah, about seven, seven or eight months. And uh, one night or one early morning, I got a call from the Coast Guard, and there they are in the middle of the ocean. And they got my boat stopped, boarding the boat, and wanted to know if I had these guys have permission to use my boat. And I said, yeah, I gave permission. I gave him the name of the captain. And, um, and that's after that I was arrested. So what happened? They, they got stopped or they had 
troubles? No, uh, they were bringing the boat back because they had run aground. I'm not sure the exact, this is something that came out during trial, but they were coming back with a bent prop. Um, and I had scheduled a boat yard time to fix the prop. And they were bringing the boat back to down into Fort Pierce, which was mm-hmm. a boat yard that we used down there. And um, the Coast Guard stopped them 48 miles out from the States. And uh, from there, um, they did an at-sea boarding. And I guess the captain of the boat was telling the Coast Guard officer that he was just trying to make a better life for himself. And the guy got suspicious, naturally, the officer. So they brought the boat into Fort Pierce where Customs and Border Protection uh, brought the dog on board and then located some cocaine they had in some bags or suitcases or something mm-hmm. like that. And uh, that was it. And um, I had gone to trial. And um, at trial, these two guys testified against me. And speaking about the resentment earlier, this is kind of where some of that resentment enters back mm-hmm. in because uh, even during my trial, both of these guys had said, well, I was allowing them to use the boat. And um, that's that's all there was to it. Uh, they testified that I wasn't there. I wasn't at the loading or unloading. You know, it just, I was loaning them the use of the boat for this purpose. And uh, being that they were testifying for the government, there's kind of an, that incentive because, you know, they get that substantial assistance right. for, for helping the government and they get time cuts, uh, Rule 35 time cuts off of their sentence. And the one guy who I didn't know, he just blew everything up and said, well, we did this trip back then. We did this trip. We did this trip. But every time he's speaking, he's talking about, you know, 50 kilos, 20 kilos, 60 kilos, enough to put anybody away for a long time. And I'm bumping my lawyer and I'm thinking about the timeline. Like I didn't even own the boat then. I didn't, he's talking about something else or, you know, easily deniable facts, you know? And, uh, that's where were, I'm. Were these guys all from the U.S. or? No, they were Bahamian citizens. Okay. Yeah, and um, so they they ended up testifying, and altogether they put 469 kilos of drug weight, which is what I was held accountable for. Um, and and I know you're familiar familiar with the conspiracy laws. Mm-hmm. So. Being that it was a cocaine conspiracy, I'm held liable for the actions of all my participants. And how it read in my indictment was named or unnamed participants. Because uh, during the trial, they were talking about these different guys in South Florida, different guys in the Bahamas, and people I've never seen or names that I've, they mean nothing to me because I've never heard. But whatever actions that they did, I was held liable for just because I entered the conspiracy of, you know, and loaning the boat. You're looking at it as really this is how a reasonable person would look at it. You're just loaning someone your boat. I mean, sure, in hindsight, wasn't a good idea, but you never you weren't thinking at the time that this could even be a possible outcome. That you know, if you, if you got uh, if you got caught, yeah, not at all. So, so why did why did you decide to take it to trial and not? Uh, did they offer a plea? There was no plea offer. Uh, we had a, an acquaintance who was a lawyer friend and I was charged with four counts and each count uh, was carried a minimum mandatory of 10 years to life. And my lawyer had, both of my lawyers had told me that I faced a minimum mandatory of 40 years. Um, and without the government offering a plea, I'd have to plead straight up 
and the minimum that I would plead to would be 40 years. And I, I think I was 34, 35 at the time. And I remember thinking, guys, I, I, I'm not going to sign a plea agreement for 40 years. Uh, I wasn't going to testify. Even if I was, I didn't have the information that they needed that, that they were looking for because I didn't know the, these other participants. So I wouldn't have been able of any benefit to the government anyway. And which is, I think, part of the reason why they didn't offer a plea. Um, but I know my lawyers had told the prosecutor that I wasn't interested in the plea, that I was going to trial um, very early on. So years later, so they told me I was facing minimum mandatory of 40 years based on the four times 10, 10, 10, and 10. Um, so years later, I get to Coleman Penitentiary and I'm there in the law library and I'm, I'm researching my case and I find out that really I was only facing a minimum mandatory of 10 years um, because uh. being, being, I think, not just a first-time offender, but the nature of the charge because they charged with a conspiracy to import, but also an attempted importation, which I'm assuming that's the trip that they got stopped on. That was the attempt. Mm. But because of that, the way the law reads is my counts would have to be run concurrent. Right. Uh, I had no idea what concurrent actually meant in terms of the law. I mean, I know what concurrent means, but yeah. you know, I didn't know there was such a thing, a difference between concurrent and consecutive uh, sentences. So, the way my lawyers explained it, and I maybe the way they understood it, that I would face four 10-year sentences consecutively. Yeah, they might have yeah. misunderstood it, too. I mean, that's common in these cases because it's confusing, confusing law. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I kind of feel like, well, that's something they probably should have known, you know, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I can kind of laugh about it now. Um, but the uh, – so they told me I faced a minimum mandatory 40 years, you know, and uh, – so by now, in, in Coleman Penitentiary, I'm, I'm fighting my case tooth and nail, and I, I find out that really that was ineffective assistance of counsel. Because um, had they told me that, no, I, I was facing maybe 10 years, I could have just pled, excuse me, and being that I was a first-time offender, and even if I just pled straight up, I probably could have got the 10-year sentence. Mm -hmm. So I did a 2255 ineffective assistance of counsel uh, motion on that. Go back to court sat in the very same holding cell in the courthouse that I, when I first turned myself into the court, uh, I wasn't arrested. I actually surrendered to the court, sat in that very same courthouse, went to an evidentiary hearing uh, with the judge and my lawyers at the time, I had an appeal lawyer, appellate lawyer at this time. And uh, so they're questioning the trial lawyers who gave me the misadvice. And they said, yeah, we, we told him he faced a minimum mandatory of 40 years and that it was clearly wrong. So we thought, wow, great we <clears throat> excuse me we won this i'm going to be able to go back and uh not necessarily have a retrial but to be able to replete um based on the correct advice which you know everybody in the courtroom my lawyer and everything they said hey we're gonna this is it this is what we're looking for because the lawyer confirmed on the record that they did in fact give me misadvice which led me to go in the trial in the first place and uh here again the government tooth and nail fought me on it and the judge ended denying the motion and I didn't give me any action on that. And That's was, just, it's just incredible. Just the power that judges have in that, yeah. that they can just, eh, no, no, I don't feel like it. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the thing is, is uh, it's a sixth amendment constitutional issue. It was a very, very strong appeal. And mm -hmm. uh, 
it, it wouldn't have overturned my conviction. I still would have had the conviction. There would still be a win. It just would have been a resentencing for me, uh, an opportunity to let me actually just plea anew. Um, and uh, like I said, I, I probably could have gone back to what it, maybe if I did plea originally, it would have yeah. been a 10-year sentence. That's what we're speculating. We don't know, you know. And at that time, how much time had you served at that point in time? Uh, just about six years, I think. I was probably about six years in. Yeah. I mean, so you're more than halfway through it if you're able to. Yeah. yeah. Um, so so this all happens. Did you have other other appeals after that then? Or was that? Well, I, I did. The um, When that drugs minus two legislation came out where they were reducing the drug table by two points for all offenders. Mm-hmm. Um, the, at the trial, they testified that I had 450 or 469 kilos. And that's, was based on when he was saying, oh, they did this trip then they did this trip and all that drug weight I was held accountable for. Well, the drugs minus two came out and it had the effect of lowering the, I'm not a lawyer, but you know, as best I can explain it, uh, lowering the drug table by two points. And at the time when I had gone through trial, um, my drug table started at level 38, which was anything for 150 kilos and up. That was the upper level of where they would start your scoring. So I started at a level 38. So when the drugs minus two came out, they were lowering that. So the new level 38 would be the level 36, 150 kilos. But what they did is they added a, a, a new upper ceiling, 150 kilos to 450 kilos. Hmm. So the new uh, level 38 would be 450 kilos and up. Okay. So we filed the motion based on, you know, the, the change in that. And uh, there again, everything should have gone my way. Well, what happened is they used the testimony from trial, which really wasn't disputed but they used that testimony. And when I mentioned earlier about there was times I was bumping my lawyer and yeah. um, listen, I didn't own a boat at the time. He's saying we owned a boat. Well, the testimony from that one guy who was obviously, you know, trying to make himself valuable to the government to get, you know, the substantial assistance motion. That testimony is what ended up hurting me years later when the drugs yeah. minus two came out. Um, and there's no point in time there where you can refute that testimony and say, I didn't even own the boat at that point in time. Yeah. Right. Because you can't bring that up at a later date. And it's, it was, it's so backwards. Uh, and, and at the time, and what we argued in the appeal was at the time when I had gone through the trial, the new level didn't exist. So how could we argue something that we don't know exists? It's not possible. It doesn't happen that way. And, you would have to rely on the levels that existed back in 2006. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, the argument and uh, still denied same judge, same everything, you know, same Crazy. prosecutors, you know? Um, and, and there again, John, that's it's, it wouldn't have overturned the conviction. It would have brought my life sentence down to 30 years, which at the time we were praying and begging just to have a 30 year sentence, just to be able to, get some good time and, and, you know, not die in prison. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, just cr- it's, it's so crazy that, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure like yourself, you went into this situation 
believing in the justice system. And, you know, before I started the show and, you know, really started digging into a lot of these cases, I had more belief in the justice system. But it is, it's not built to give people justice. It's, that's not at all in the, in the name. It's, uh, no, it's it's craziness. I was incarcerated with people who had committed rapes, murder, even kidnapping. Mm -hmm. I watched go home. I watched come in and I watched go home because they were sentenced to less time. And um, it it was disturbing. It was disturbing. But again, you know, I do do deserve to be punished. I I did wrong. I'm not minimizing the impact that drugs have on the community. I'm not minimizing what I did, you know, in my mind at the time. What I was going through, I, I somehow rationalized it and thought I wasn't that bad, and I, I went ahead, you know. Um, I'm extremely thankful now that, you know, President Trump was able to see and, and uh, you know, everybody got on board. And, and you know, and it's funny, uh, it's, uh, you know, you, you hear that there's no good people in prison, and that's, mm-hmm. it's, it's really the furthest, furthest thing from the truth. Uh, Rufus Rochelle. Um, I was going to ask you about Rufus. Funny you bring that up. Yeah. Cause I've yeah. had, I've had him on here before and he talked about you. Uh, yeah. Just a gentleman. Uh, really it's, it's, he started all for me and uh, we were in a program uh, in the Coleman medium and the skills program as mentors there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're mentors for people with mental health issues and brain injuries, that sort of thing. And uh, I, I very rarely would share anything about my family or my personal life with anybody. And one day I was just particularly down and, we struck up a conversation, which prior to that, Rufus and I kind of had the small talk, you know, we didn't get into any deep conversations mm-hmm. about anything. And, and uh, this one particular time I just opened up to him and, you know, about the losing hope and family losing hope and that sort of thing. And he said, man, you got to call Amy of can do and can do what this, I never heard of them, you know? And so, uh, he was adamant about it and I kind of blew him off for a day or two. And he asked me if I called yet and it's no, and, you got to get on the phone and have June call. So I, I got on the phone with June and had her call and uh, thank God she, she took my case and, and started, you know, advocating for me and, and getting me noticed. And next thing you know, Alice Marie Johnson has got my case. And next thing you know, the president Trump is signing my, my clemency and I'm, I'm home. And uh, that's amazing. It's, it's, it, had I not had that conversation with him, it would have never happened. Yeah, it's funny when you look back at the, the chain reaction of, of everything that, that caused it to happen. It's it's incredible. And, and yeah, Rufus is he's been on this show, just a yeah. exceptional human being, just just a great guy. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, you know, you did 15 years in prison. What was the? It's hard to look at it this way and look at it in a sort of a, a positive way. But what was the biggest? positive thing or thing you maybe learned about yourself that you didn't know going in, uh, that you, that you took away from your time in prison? Uh, you know, I had a lot of, a lot of time obviously for some honest self-examination and, uh, I was able to kind of sit back and, and look at some character flaws of mine. Um, things that I wanted to prove about myself. I think things that probably my whole life I've kind of just piled on and piled on that that led me to kind of go down that path to begin with mm-hmm. um i've always kind of had that that eh, you know like if things get tough you know eh, screw it i'm gonna try it you know and and i think that's where that that criminal thinking came into play um but it's also tied to adventure 
I've also like been real adventurous my whole life. And even not in a, necessarily a bad way, but in a impulsive kind of way where I, when I used to have a lawnmower, uh, before I had my lawnmower shop, I did commercial lawn maintenance and landscaping. And mm -hmm. I used to deal with certain lawnmower shops in the area. And one day I went there, I felt like I was mistreated. They were very friendly, you know, and, and spent a lot of money buying supplies and consumables there. And I remember I came home that afternoon and I told June, I said, we're going to open a lawnmower shop. And she's looking at me like I'm crazy. And I didn't stop. I just, I literally went from that moment to every second until I was able to get the funding together and open up a lawnmower shop. And I, I just went zero to 60 impulsively. Uh, know nothing about what it takes to run a lawnmower shop. You know, um, I had worked on my own equipment, but I didn't know, you know, what it would take as far as inventory and vendors and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so it worked out. Luckily, you know, we, we had a thriving shop, you know, but it was, you know, by the seat of my pants, but that impulsivity, that impulsiveness of me, um, I was able to kind of really sit back and examine that like, okay, it's, it's, you have to be a little more calculated and thoughtful when it comes to big life decisions, you know? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, some of that can be good though. I mean, you need a little bit of that if you can, yeah. uh, I guess use it as a tool and it's not a, yeah. not a hindrance, I guess. Yeah. But I'd say that that's probably one of the biggest things I was able to look back in hindsight and say, okay, because I've kind of always been like that. You know, I, I get a wild hair and I just take off. And, mm -hmm. You know, I don't really plan it out. And, uh, you know, it could be good, but it's it it was bad when I decided to become a cocaine smuggler, you know. <laughs> yeah. Man. So now that you've been out, you've been out for, what, I guess coming up on six, seven six months. months? Yeah, about six months. Um when you look even farther, uh, farther forward ahead, five years, 10 years from now, where do you see yourself uh, then? What kind of things do you envision? What kind of goals or, or just things you want to see either in your, your personal life or, or professional life or both? You know, it's funny. June and I talk about that a lot. There's, there's, I have, I want to get back into business again. I've, I've been self-employed a lot. I've had a lot of businesses throughout the years. Um, in the short term, I just, doing little things here and there just to, you know, add the money to the till and, and survive. But there's no, it's, I really want to, you know, I have that phrase about Island time. Um, spent a lot of time in the Bahamas and, and mm -hmm. fishing and, and, you know, working over there. And, and that Island time is, is a slow time. Things just kind of slow down. So I really just want to slow the time down. Um, obviously, you know, I'm on the back half of my life now and, it's, it's funny because it seemed like those 14 years have just dragged by. But now that I've been home, the six months have just sped by super fast. That's, mm -hmm. uh, and I want to try to slow that time down. And in and, and our minds, the way we've been thinking about it is, is just kind of live a simple, basic life. No frills, nothing fancy. Um, just survive. You know, I've been digging in the garden and fighting with the squirrels because they're eating my tomatoes <laughs> and sunflowers, you know. That's but the worst. <laughs> it's, it's it's the joy in those little things that that's really all I care about. It's and if we could slow that time down to kind of island time speed and just enjoy life. And as far as June and I go, it's she's been a, a fantastic mother, wonderful wife, and and completely supportive. And I'm so thankful. And it's funny because the six months it's that we've been together since I've been home. 
there's been no awkwardness or it's like we just picked up where we left off 14 some years ago um mm-hmm. and, and which is really cool so it's that's really it john just kind of just slowing the clock as best as i can and you know yeah well i mean to be honest that's that's good advice for anybody i think too much in today's world i mean i'm I'm as at fault as anyone else you get tied up and doing all these different things and yeah i like that i, I need more island time in my life i'm well i'm gonna <laughs> get some soon i'm taking uh my family were going on a little vacation here at the end of uh, end of May, going down nice. to North Carolina. So I'll excellent. Excellent. Look forward to, to unwinding then. Yeah. But uh, that's really all the questions I have. I want to give you some time if you have anything that you, uh, any parting words of wisdom or anything that I didn't ask you about you want to talk about, or if you have something that you uh, that you want to plug, just uh, some time to do that. Well, no, I um, you know, there's there's I learned a lot. I made a mistake and, and I paid for it and I'm extremely, extremely thankful for, you know, the people in my life and the support system. And like you and I were talking in the beginning, uh, having the voice and having advocates out there is, is such a godsend for people in prison. Um, there were times where I would just be in a completely bad, dark place. Didn't even want to call home because I know how my, my demeanor was, my attitude. And, and June, my wife would detect it in a heartbeat. Um, or, you know, where you're at that point where you just want to give up. And then I would have a, a nice little email from Amy Kendu and she'd just give me a, a one-liner and it was something that's so simple, like, Hey, the Calvary is coming, hang on, you know, we're going to get you out of there. And <clears throat> things like that are priceless for people in prison. And there's a lot of people still in prison. Uh, and it's funny because when I got a life sentence as a first offender, I thought there's there's no way that, you know, everybody has that. I'm the only guy. And it's not true. There's a lot of lifers in there that is their first offense, nonviolent offense. Um, I think it's important that somehow we get away with that. I don't think it's anybody should be sentenced to life in prison. Um, it's, it's an unexecuted death sentence is mm-hmm. ultimately what it is. There's no outdate. There's no good time. Uh, Normally you're rewarded good time for, you know, your good behavior, not get being a troublemaker. And that doesn't happen for a lifer. And so in particular, you know, I think that needs to change, but uh, just the, the advocacy and, and the public support, and like things you're doing with your show, it's phenomenal. And it, it does make a difference. Well, thank you, John. And, and thanks for coming on the show and yeah, sharing your story. Me. I appreciate you having me. All right, man. All right, take it easy. You too. Thanks, John. All right, guys, taking a quick break here. Last week, I talked to you about uh, Tyler Colford and his new song, also known as Crypto Man, and uh, he's featured on a track with Intrinsic. It's called First World Problems. Basically, what it's doing is it's talking about different concepts are woven throughout the track, you know, cancel culture, grifters, inflation, innovation, all kinds of different things. It's a really, really interesting track. The video dropped this past week. It is amazing, too. Actually, the Taxation is Death mug that we sell in the Lions of Liberty store, lionsofliberty.store. You can pick yours up today. Makes the debut in the video. Going to link to the video on the show notes page. But please, please, on top of that, of course, like the video, share the video. Please go wherever you listen to your music, iHeartRadio, whichever one of these places where you listen to music, please like and follow Crypto Man 
and please like this song, share it with your friends, and it's just an awesome song, guys. So I got a clip for you. Check it out. Cost of education when internet is free. Blind window makers who simply cannot see. Hope you all enjoyed that interview on Finding Freedom, another awesome guest. And hopefully you guys also have subscribed to the Lions of Liberty podcast and you're getting all three of our unique shows in your uh, little listening device delivered to your ears. Um, If you haven't, please do that. Just go to your app, you know how to do it, and subscribe. You can also leave us a five-star review and a nice comment. We would prefer if you did it on Apple Podcasts, but anywhere you can on the internet, please leave us a positive comment. Also, if you want to support us, we would love that too. Please go to patreon.com slash lines of liberty. You can uh, support us for as little as a couple bucks. Or if you get in at a higher level, you get merchandise and access to us and all the way up to you can advertise on the show or get to even produce a show. So check it all out, patreon.com slash lions of liberty. And if you haven't checked it out yet, please consider checking out the Lions of Liberty store where we have some awesome t-shirts. We have a taxation is death t-shirt with an awesome design. We have a wax on tax off t-shirt and we're always coming up with new ideas and adding new t-shirt designs to the store. Check that out at lionsofliberty.store. And if you're in the pride, you get a discount on anything you buy in the store. So you do both of those things and you win. That's all I got, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.